0: You can grab your seats. Also, if you are in junior high and you want to go downstairs to Sunday school, I won't be offended, but Joseph is down there preaching, teaching, if you want to go. I'm not looking at any two grams specifically, but all right, there you go. He just ran so fast out of here. All right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We are going to be in Acts chapter 4, 1 to 22 today. Um, and I want to say, I don't know, I told this to Dwayne just a couple moments ago, but uh, the amount of people who came up to me afterwards, uh, after the first service today, who said, I thought you were leaving. Um, so if you were scared there for a second, it wasn't my fault. That was all Dwayne. Um, but it was good. Thank you so much. Um, I, I've loved every, every, every minute I've had here so far. It's been a great church family to be a part of. Um, let me pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather here and, and worship you, to praise your name, and we pray that as we continue in worship and, and read through the scripture that you've revealed yourself in, that you would just make your truth known to us today, God, that you would open our eyes to the, to the work of the Spirit as we just hear from you today, and we pray that you would help us to, to know you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So one of the questions in my years of youth ministry that I often get asked is, why do you believe what you believe? Why have you built your life around the gospel? Why do you trust what the Bible tells you is true? And it's always interesting because when we talk about belief in our culture, it can be a little confusing, right? I believe a lot of things. I believe one day I will see the Leafs win the Stanley Cup. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I, I believe, this is true, I believe the best place to go for a vacation would be Disney World. It's where I wanted to go for my honeymoon and my wife told me I'm a child. Um, <laughs> there are lots of ways that we use the word belief, but when it comes to our relationship with God, belief needs to be more than a hunch or a thought or a feeling that we have No, when it comes to the seriousness of the gospel, we need something more concrete, something stronger when it comes to understanding what belief really is. George MacDonald, one of C.S. Lewis's favorite authors, uh, he wrote this A man's real belief is that which he lives by. What a man believes is the thing he does, not the thing he thinks. What a man believes is the thing he does, not the thing he thinks. Maybe a story will help us understand this. There there was a a woman who lived in northern Africa at the turn of the third century. And at that time, northern Africa was actually a a hotspot for Christian growth in the Roman Empire. Unfortunately, the Roman Emperor didn't want Christianity to grow. And so there was this woman, Perpetua, who was 22 years old, recently married, recently had her first child, and was going to classes for her upcoming baptism as she had converted uh, to Christianity or had decided to embrace this as her personal identity. And everyone in that class was arrested. They were given an opportunity, deny your faith, worship only the emperor, or be thrown into the arena with the gladiators and the wild animals. And so she's in jail waiting for her her, um, trial And her father comes to her and says, please deny your faith. Do it for me. Do it for your husband. Do it for your child. And Perpetua points to a vase in the room and says to her father, would you call this vase by any other name than what it is? And her father said, no. So she looked at him and said, Well, neither can I be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. Belief isn't what you think. It's not a hunch. It's not a feeling you have. Belief is who you are and what you do. And Perpetua embodied that. In fact, Augustine preached four sermons on her death. Imagine the kind of belief that inspires other people to believe. Imagine the kind of belief that can can cause others to see Christ In the way that you live out this faith that you have, the question all of us in this room should have is how do we have that kind of belief? How do we have faith that is so unshakable it becomes a part of who we are? And as we read through Acts chapter 4 verses 1 to 22 today, we're going to read about the first time any of the church leaders, the early church leaders, were directly persecuted. The first time any of them is thrown in jail. And through their belief and how they respond, we can see how we can have that same strong belief that they had. So we're going to walk through the passage today, and then I have three thoughts I want to leave us with. So let's begin in chapter 4, verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So what we see here is actually a continuation of chapter 3. In chapter 3, we see the gospel being preached. We see a man who could never walk being healed. A man who was sitting outside the beautiful gate, begging for money, and instead receives a gift from God through the apostles to be able to walk, to be able to, to dance, to be able to, to jump and run. And people are starting to, to hear the message that the apostles are continuing from the time of Jesus. They're starting to see the, the miracles that are, are continuing that Jesus had been doing. And people are starting to notice that God is doing something incredible here. The, the church has grown. The last time we saw the number of the church, it was 3,000 men. And now it's 5,000. In just a number of weeks, the church has grown exponentially, 60% in just weeks. And and what makes this even more incredible is it says that there's about 5,000 men who believed. And most scholars would point out to the fact that at this time when Acts was being written, if you're doing a census or keeping track of a number of people, you would only count the men. You only count the people who could serve in the army. This doesn't count the women and children. And so since the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, the church is booming. God is doing something incredible. His kingdom is exploding And it says the main way that this is happening is through the preaching that the the apostles are doing, through the miracles that are happening. It says that the, the Sadducees, the priests and the captain of the guard, they're greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And as people are hearing that message, the church is growing. But at the same time, the priests the religious leaders are getting more and more frustrated. They thought they had taken care of this whole Jesus thing when they put him in the tomb. But the church is growing. The message is continuing. The miracles are still happening. And so they have to continue to try to stop this movement because it goes against everything they stand for. You see, the kingdom of God, the work of God, the message of God is either going to bring people in and save them as the church is growing, or it's going to fight against every inclination that the human heart has, and they are going to reject it strongly. There's no in-between here. It's either accept the gospel that's being presented by the apostles or throw them into jail. The, the, the priests here that are being mentioned are Sadducees, and they didn't believe in the resurrection for individual people. They believed maybe one day God would redeem all of Israel, but they didn't believe every single person who died would be risen again. And the, the, the captain of the temple guard was actually the second most powerful person in Judaism at that time, and they had a very specific rule. Don't let Rome get angry. See, Rome, who was in control of Israel at that time, they let the Jewish people worship God however they wanted as long as they knew who was really in control, as long as they knew who really deserved worship, the emperor, as long as they knew where their money and their resources were going to, as long as Israel knew their place, they could do whatever they wanted. And the temple of the guard was there to make sure that none of these crazy Messiah movements got too out of control, to make sure the emperor didn't see what the Israelites were doing and then come down and bring even more oppression than was already there. And the Sadducees worked with Rome because they got to keep the power that they had. They got to be in control of the Sanhedrin. They got to be in control of of the temple. They got to be in control of that position of the high priest. It was always a Sadducee because they were willing to work with Rome, and Rome let them have power. And as this Christian movement is exploding and becoming just so difficult to ignore the Sadducees start to realize that what they have put their trust in, that position, that power that they so love is in jeopardy. And so they see Peter and John preaching the gospel, preaching the resurrection of Christ, and they throw him into jail, throw them into jail because they're unwilling to give up their view of the world, their position of power for the kingdom of God. And yet, God's kingdom is growing. Verse 5, the next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. So Peter and John are thrown into jail overnight because they couldn't have a trial. They couldn't get everybody together that evening. They have to wait till the next day. So they throw them into jail, maybe hoping a little bit of uncomfortability will give their heads a shake, but also to bring everybody in the next day. And they start to gather. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? So they're talking about the miracle. They're talking about this healing. What gave you the power? What gave you the authority to do what you have done? And notice who is here, Annas and Caiaphas, this family of the high priest. And and in Israel, once you were a high priest, you were always a high priest. Just kind of kind of like the u.s how you refer to every president as mr president even after they're already out of office that position still holds significance for their culture and the high priest you never lost that significance these are the big deals when it comes to how the temple is run these are the important figures when it comes to the the religion of the jewish people and these are two of the people who orchestrated the death of jesus caiaphas and annas instrumental in making sure the arrest happened, setting that whole plan into place, making sure that Jesus wasn't let go, stirring up the crowd to make sure that Jesus was put to death. And you can imagine the frustration as they thought they were done with this, and it keeps going. They can't stop the movement that God has has already started. They cut off one head, and now two more are there, not to mention all the other apostles and people who are preaching the good news of Christ. And so they're frustrated and they want to put an end to this. They're done. They thought this was over and they questioned Peter and John. In verse 8, it says Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. But whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Peter looks at them and he says, basically, are we really on trial for helping somebody who couldn't walk, who couldn't live on his own, stand up on his own feet? And if you really want to know how this happened, then fine, I'll tell you, it's Jesus. You crucified him, you thought he was dead. You declared him guilty, but God is stronger than you. God raised him back to life. You see, Jesus had done nothing wrong, and so the law couldn't hold him. He conquered death. He conquered the enemy. He conquered our sin, and God raised him back to life. This man is healed because Jesus is alive and at work. Peter answers their question, and then he does something incredible. He takes a passage from the Psalms and applies it directly to the religious leaders questioning them. In in youth group, what we do when we do small groups right now is we ask the same three questions every week. What do you learn about people in this passage? What do you learn about God in this passage? And why does it matter to you? And we do that because we want to train the youth how to read the Bible on their own how to actually read the Bible and get something from it. They, they need to understand what the passage is saying. What does it say about people? What does it say about God? But most importantly, and I believe this is the only uh, way that people will start to enjoy reading the Bible, to understand that it's talking to you, to understand that God has revealed himself in this passage and it matters to you, so figure out why. But here, Peter actually takes a passage and he lets the religious leaders know why it matters. See, he quotes Psalm 118, and he says, The stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. The stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And all of those religious leaders who would have had their Bibles memorized would have known the actual way that passage goes is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Peter takes it and changes the builders to you builders. He's letting them know, you are rejecting God's redeeming work. You are rejecting God's kingdom. God has sent Christ to be the cornerstone of his redeeming work, the cornerstone of the kingdom of God that it will be based on, and you're rejecting what God is doing. And then he says this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Why is Jesus the cornerstone? Because it's through him and him alone that sin is forgiven. It's through him and him alone that death is defeated. It's through him and him alone that you can be welcomed into the kingdom of God. And these religious leaders are denying who Jesus is. And the question is, where does Peter get the strength, the wisdom to look at these people who have thrown him into jail and boldly preach the gospel to them? In verse 8, it says, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important to note, in the book of Acts, being filled with the Spirit is different than being full of the Spirit. All believers are full of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives within them. Being filled with the Spirit is something different. Being filled with the Spirit is this moment of God giving strength and wisdom to somebody in a time of need. God providing them with what they need to address the situation that they're in. It's this extra empowerment that God gives them to face the trials that they're in. It has to do with a specific moment, a specific task. And here, as Peter faces his accusers, he's filled with the Spirit. God is there with him, empowering him in this situation so that he can preach the gospel, so that he can have the courage needed to not back down and make Christ clear to them. And this is important for us to know because often as Christians, we ask the question, if I ever face something difficult, am I going to have the strength to stay true to my faith? When I go through a trial, am I going to be able to walk through it and see God on the other side? Am I going to have the strength to not be shaken? And what we see here in Peter is you're asking the wrong question. The question isn't, I hope my strength is good enough to get me through this trial. I hope my faith is strong enough. The question here is do you trust that God will see you through your trials? Do you trust that God will fill you with the Spirit when you are in those conversations that you don't have answers for? When you are, are going through those times in life that you find difficult, when your faith is shaken, do you have the, the strength and conviction to trust that God will see you through it? Because it's not about how strong your faith is, it's about the God who has given you that and faith and how strong He is. Do we trust that God can fill us with the Spirit the same way he does with Peter? And so he gives them this answer. And as he's doing so, he preaches the gospel to the people who are accusing him. That's how you know he's filled with the Spirit there. He doesn't stop preaching Jesus. He keeps going. And this grace and compassion this patience that he shows to these people who are accusing him, who are threatening him, and he still makes it clear to them that Jesus is the name through which we can be saved. It's not too late for them. They can repent. They can believe. You can see the Holy Spirit in Peter as he doesn't just ignore the people questioning him. He longs to see them know who Jesus is too. Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They bring Peter and John forward. They start to question him, question them. They start to to try to trick them, try to get them to back down, try to prove that the Sadducees, that these religious leaders are in the right and that these men are in the wrong. And to their horror, they realize these men are a lot more like their rabbi than they thought they would be. Just like they could never stump Jesus, just like they could never get rid of Jesus, just like Jesus rose to every challenge they had, his disciples have been following in his footsteps. They've spent time with the Messiah. They know who he is. They've heard him reveal the truth of the scriptures. They know the meaning of the word better than the Sadducees do. And just like Jesus, they leave the Sadducees with no answers. It says, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, the man who was able to walk is standing there behind Peter and John. There was nothing they could say, so they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it, but to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. They say the apostles have performed a miracle. They've performed a sign that points to the kingdom of God. We cannot deny that. Yet instead of embracing it, instead of believing it, they're unwilling to back down and give in the power that they have, the life that they have. And so they say, we got to squash this. What are we going to do? They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Just a couple things I want to point out there before we get to the, the... the final thoughts today. Peter and John can't stop preaching the gospel. They're unwilling to back down. They've experienced the risen Lord and they say, everybody needs to hear this and it doesn't matter what you do to us, we're not stopping. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. They can't stop it. But then, mo- most importantly here, in verse 21, after further threats they let them go, they could not decide how to punish them, because all the people were praising God for what had happened. All the work that Peter and John are doing, all the work that the apostles are doing is pointing to God and his kingdom. Pointing to God and the fact that he sent his son to redeem the world and save sinners from their sins. That's what we need to do as a church. That's what we need to do as Christians. Every conversation we have, everything we do, when we help people, when we do hampers, whatever we're doing, it should all point to the redeeming work of God and his kingdom that is bursting forth. It's not just about making ourselves known. It's not even just about helping people. It's about pointing to them, to, pointing them to their greatest need, which is Christ. All of the people were praising God because this man had been healed. They weren't rejoicing that the man was, was walking again, although that's part of it. They're rejoicing that God's kingdom is breaking forth in this man, that the, the effects of, of the curse in his life, the sickness and the death and the pain and the separation from God, you can see those things changing, and they're praising God because of it. And so here we get this account of the first imprisonment, the first trial of the early church and what do we see in it? As we look at them and we see their belief, what do we learn from it? How do we have a faith like that? And there's three things I wanna point out here. The resurrection is the foundation of belief. That's the first thing we see here. The resurrection is the foundation of belief. Did you notice in verse two that it says, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. It's interesting here that when it talks about them preaching the gospel, the focus is on the resurrection. And often in our churches today, we focus on the crucifixion. We focus on the fact that Jesus died for our sins so that we can be forgiven. And that is true. And that is a part of the gospel. But for some reason, Peter and John here are focusing on the resurrection. Why? I think there's a couple things to consider here. The first is that it actually happened. There had been a lot of people who claimed to be the Messiah and were executed and you never saw again. Jesus is different. He was resurrected. That really happened. Trip Lee, who's a a hip-hop artist and a a pastor in the States, he he tweeted this out. It's a great tweet. Uh, The resurrection doesn't just give us hope because it's a nice story. It gives us life because it really happened. You see... The crucifixion shows us the grace of God, the the love of God, the forgiveness of God. The resurrection shows us the truth of God, the power of God. The resurrection, because Jesus rose again, shows us everything that he said and did was true. The resurrection confirms the crucifixion. The resurrection is the historical event that the the apostles can point to and say, look, the word of God is true. Jesus is alive. But I think it's more than that too. C.S. Lewis in his book Miracles, he writes this about the resurrection. The resurrection is the central theme in every Christian sermon reported in the Acts. The resurrection and its consequences were the gospel or the good news which the Christians brought. In the resurrection, we see the hope that Jesus gives us. In the resurrection, we see that sin and death are not the final answer or final word. Life is the final word, because Jesus died for our sin. He died in our place and rose again so that we can follow Him into life. Through the resurrection, we see God's kingdom bursting forth. We see death being reversed. we see sickness being healed. We see the word of God being proclaimed. We see those who couldn't walk, walk. We see those who couldn't see, start to see. In the resurrection, we see the power, the hope, and the glory of God undeniable in a historical event. And so the belief that these apostles have is grounded in the resurrection the proof that Jesus is the Messiah, that he died for our sins and gives us life. But there's something we need to note here as well. The resurrection, although it's the foundation of belief, it doesn't guarantee belief. In this passage, we have Caiaphas and Annas who were instrumental in the crucifixion of Jesus, who were very aware that Jesus had died, and who are also aware that the tomb is empty, that the church is growing, and that people are being healed in the name of Christ, that Christ is alive and active, and yet they don't believe. They refuse to give up the comforts that they have, the position that they have to accept the gospel. Daryl L. Bach, in his um, Commentary on this passage, he writes this, The fact that the miracle is not responded to in a proper way by the Sadducees, given its role as a sign, portrays the leaders as hard-hearted. No evidence will count for them or cause them to change their negative response toward those associated with Jesus. They recognize that the miracle is a sign pointed to, pointed to the kingdom of God, and they still refuse to believe that Jesus is their Messiah. There are all kinds of reasons why people don't believe. But at the heart of it is their hard-heartedness. Their refusal to believe the gospel is true despite the evidence. As I walk with students who ask me, why do you believe what you believe? I I will talk with them as long as they want about the eyewitness accounts in the gospel about the writings of people outside the church, like Polycarpus or Josephus, talk about all the evidence that points to the fact that the resurrection is not something that's made up, but an actual historical event. And sometimes I'll, I'll get to a student and they'll say, but, and sometimes I look at them and say, but you want to keep doing what you're doing. And they'll say, yeah. Sometimes students will tell you, I just want to live before I give my life to Jesus. I want to experience, and you say, you don't even know what life is yet. There's something in the human heart that is just unwilling to respond to Jesus because we want to cling on to what we think is good, what we think is important. Hold on to that power or that popularity or that position that we have. Timothy Keller writes, belief or non-belief in the resurrection is never merely an intellectual process. We are not computers. We are flesh and blood human beings. And when we confront the claim of the resurrection, we address it not only with logic, but with a lifetime of hopes and fears and pre-existing faith commitments. And we will never be able to accept it until we see our need for God's grace. You see, the issue with the religious leaders in this passage, the religious that's, uh, the, the issue that so many people around us face is that they just don't see their need for Jesus. They'd rather stay where they are. Thank you very much. And so we need to be praying for people. We need to be praying that God would soften that heart, that he would make himself known, that he would make his gospel known. We should be praying that God would make the sins of people know so that they can see they need Jesus. Because sometimes it doesn't matter how good your argument is. Unless God gets to the heart, they're not going to believe. So we should be praying earnestly for those around us. And the last thing I want to point out here in this passage today is the resurrection empowers belief. The resurrection empowers belief. Notice these guys thrown into jail because they can't stop preaching the gospel. Put on trial and they can't stop preaching the gospel. Threatened again and they can't stop preaching the gospel. This isn't just a belief that they have in their hearts and they just sit there with it. This belief has transformed their lives. This belief has become something that they want everybody to hear, everybody to know. Jesus is alive you can have a relationship with God. Your sins can be forgiven. You need to hear it, and they're unwilling to stop. They cannot stop preaching the gospel. They cannot, cannot stop pointing to the resurrection. This is true. They've seen it. They've experienced it, and everybody needs to know. See, this isn't the only time people try to take out the church. There have been lots of people throughout the history of the world, still today, people who want you to believe that all of Christianity is a farce. One of the most famous ones is Voltaire, a French philosopher during the Enlightenment. And he wrote against Christianity throughout his whole life. And then he said these words A hundred years after I'm gone, the only use anybody will have for a Bible is that it's a good antique. He believed that Christianity would be over 100 years after his death. He died in the 1700s. And furthermore, the Geneva Bible Society ended up in possession of his house. And they started using his old rooms to store Bibles that they were handing out to other people. And then they took his printing press where he wrote his anti-Christian essays. And they started printing Bibles on them because people wanted to hear the gospel. You can't stop what God is doing. Jesus is alive. It would have been so easy for the early church to be squashed. The power of Israel and the religious leaders, the power of Rome, all against it. And yet they were growing and growing and growing. Spreading throughout Israel, spreading out throughout the Gentile world, spreading throughout Rome. Because Jesus isn't dead, he's alive. I'm going to invite the band back up. I have have one more quote to share share with you from Timothy Keller. He writes this, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. If we want to have belief like these apostles, if we want to have a belief that when other people see it, they can't help but join in that belief, if we want a belief that points other people to the Messiah who died for their sins and was risen again, if we want people to see the kingdom of God and how we live and who we are, then we need to trust in the resurrection because all we need to know is Jesus is alive and he's at work. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you've revealed yourself through scripture, but most importantly, you've revealed yourself through your son. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the crucifixion. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins, and we thank you that you have the power of life. We thank you that death is not the final word. We thank you that you are making all things new. We thank you for the resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.